turn with me to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John, chapter 10. Gospel of John, chapter 10. We'll be reading verses 7 through 21 and considering Christ the Shepherd. John, chapter 10. Verse 7 through 21, give attention to God's holy word. Then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep and am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father." Therefore, there was a division again among the Jews because of these sayings. Many of them said, He has a demon and is mad. Why do you listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we once again are gathered to worship you and to hear from you. And we pray that in accordance to the righteousness and the reward of the Lord Jesus and his death on the cross, you would cause us to hear his voice proclaiming your name in the midst of us, his brethren. We ask that you would bless this time of preaching by pouring out your Holy Spirit and causing us to see and hear wonderful things from your word. We pray this all for Jesus' sake. Amen. In the ancient world and up into the medieval world, in fact, in in all of history, before the invention of gunpowder, cities had to be walled. And walled cities were done for the sake of defense. If you have a city that you want to protect, you set up a wall around it. However, if you set up a wall around it, you have to create a space for people to enter your city. And so in a walled city, uh, there's always a gate or several gates put at places in the wall to allow people to enter in. Now, in a time of conflict and in a time of combat, the weakest point of any walled city is the gate. The, The gate is always the weakest point because usually with a walled city, you have very thick walls that are very high and they cannot be penetrated. And if a 
uh, army has sufficient food, sufficient water within the walls, they can last almost indefinitely before those walls come down. That's why you see in a lot of the movies and the historical accounts, the attacking army will attack the gate. They try to get through the gate because that is the weakest point. One of the great uh, mercies of the church of the Lord Jesus is that it is a walled city. It is a city protected and defended by the Lord Jesus Christ, and in this city there is a gate. And yet, the gate of this city is the strongest point of the wall. The gate of the city of God is the most impregnable point along the entire circumference of the city. And the gate of the Lord Jesus Christ's city is the doctrine of Christ. What we're going to learn in this passage is that it is the doctrine of Christ, his person and work, which is the way that one enters the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to see three things in this passage. Verses 7 through 10, we see doctrine's doorway. In verses 11 through 18, we see doctrine's substance. And in verses 19 through 21, doctrine's division. Verses 7 through 10, doctrine's doorway. Verses 11 through 18, doctrine's substance. And verses 19 through 21, doctrine's division. And what we're going to learn is that through the doorway of right doctrine, the sheep of the Lord Jesus Christ enter the church, and those who are not the sheep of Christ are excluded from the church. Through doctrine's doorway, the sheep of Christ enter the church, and those who are not the sheep of Christ are excluded from the church. And so we begin by looking at doctrine's doorway. Now we have to set the context a little bit before we get further into this passage. Recall that John chapter 10 follows John chapter 9. No surprises there. But in the Gospel of John, Chapter 9 and chapter 10 are a continuous narrative. John chapter 9 began with the miracle of healing the blind man. This is referenced in verse 21. As a division arises about Christ, the Jews reference this miracle as proof that what Christ is teaching is true. So this whole narrative is a consistent whole. The end result of John chapter 9 is that the blind man was healed And he was excluded from the visible church. The the rulers of the synagogue excommunicated him because he confessed that Christ was a prophet. And so the doctrine that's on the table as Christ is talking to the Jews is the doctrine of the visible church. Now, just to have a brief definition here, the visible church is all of those in the earth and their children who profess the true religion. That's the visible church. All those outwardly in the world of men who profess to follow the Word of God. Now, at this time in world history, that was the nation of the Jews. The nation of the Jews was the visible church. They professed the true religion. Christ 
now comes to the Jews and begins preaching the doctrine of the gospel, the doctrine of his person and work. And now there are divisions arising among the Jews because Christ is bringing this new doctrine. It's new historically, but it's not new as if nobody had ever heard of these doctrines before. We just read in Psalm 22 how David prophesies of the crucifixion and exaltation of Christ all the way back in Psalm 22. And so as he's uh, teaching the Jews about himself and his work, he has to explain to them that even though you're a part of the visible church, even though you outwardly profess to follow Jehovah, if you do not follow me, you're not really in the church. If you do not follow my doctrine, if you do not, as he says in verse 7, enter through me, you're not a part of the Lord's sheepfold. Now, I need to issue a, a minor correction here. Last week, as I was preaching John chapter 10, verses 1 through 6, Christ uses this example of the door, and he explains that uh, he who enters by the door is the shepherd, and those who don't enter by the door are thieves and robbers. Last week, as I was preaching this passage, I interpreted the door as the conscience of the individual. That was a mistake. I wasn't paying attention to the context, and so I apologize for mishandling it at that point. Now, I'm, I'm mentioning this because it's important to understand what Christ is talking about in this passage, but I also want to, at this point, commend unto you the office of ruling elder. As I was preaching this passage, and I, I made my mistake but wasn't aware of it, some of my ruling elders came to me and said, hey, we, we think you got this wrong. Have you considered this, this, and this? Have you considered what some of the commentaries say about this? They brought it to my attention. I looked at it, I, I looked at the scriptures, and I, and I said, you're right, I got that wrong. I'm commending this unto you because this is the function of ruling elders. This is what their job is in the church. And what God has given to you in this congregation is a set of ruling elders who are concerned about these things and are willing to come to the pastor to show him where he made a mistake. And so with that having been said, thank the Lord for your ruling elders. Let's look at Christ and the door. He says in verse 7, uh, Jesus said unto them again, Most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Now as I've said, Christ is referring to doctrine at this point. And, and specifically what he means is the doctrine of himself. The, the teaching of who he is, his person, and work. In verses 7 through 10, this doctrine is being described in its function as a door. Now, we all know what doors are meant to do. They're meant to open and let people in, and they're meant to close and keep people out. Christ says in this passage, I am the door. If you want to enter into the church, if you want to be a part of the Lord's flock, you have to enter through me. He says in verse 8, all who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. Now, what Christ means in verse 8, he's not speaking about all of the prophets from Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah. He's not speaking historically that everyone who came before me was a thief and a robber. What he's saying is that those 
who came and taught salvation in any other way than through my person and my work are thieves and robbers. What would examples of this be? Well, look in the Old Testament period. You have Balaam, a false prophet. You have several other false prophets in the history of Israel. You have Joseph Smith. You have Muhammad. You have all other kinds of teachers, religious teachers, that tell the world of men, if you want eternal life, do these things. Follow this path. Follow my teachings. Christ is saying all of these are thieves and robbers. Why? Because they didn't come through the door. They didn't come teaching the gospel of Christ. They didn't come preaching the gospel of Christ. But notice what Christ says at the end of verse 8. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. Later on when we get to the substance of the doctrine, he's going to explain what this means. But at this point, there's an indication that there are a certain number of people among men. There are an elect uh, portion of mankind who are the sheep of Christ. Notice that they are sheep before Christ comes to them. They are already a part of the number. And then when Christ comes, these elect respond. But that will come later on in the substance. At this point, he simply says, the sheep didn't follow them. The sheep didn't listen to them. Verse 9, he repeats this, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Notice in verse 9, he develops the metaphor of the door and says, you can enter in by me. You can go in and out. Finally, in verse 10, he says, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Christ, in verse 10, finally discloses the difference between himself and all other teachers. And the difference between himself and all other religious teachers. The reason he is the door of the sheep. The reason he is the only access to the church. Is because all other religious teachers. Muhammad, Joseph Smith, the false prophets. False prophets today. Their whole motivation is to get wealthy off of the flock. You know, we say that a uh, pastor who preaches and is constantly asking for money, what do we say that he's doing? He's fleecing the flock. He he just wants to extract from the sheep and uh, fatten himself upon the resources of the sheep. Christ says the thief comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. This description is found in the Old Testament when the book of Micah, turn to the book of Micah, Micah chapter 3, there's other passages that speak about this in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 34 is another one. Micah chapter 3, he speaks about these thieves and robbers In chapter 3, verse 5, notice what he says. Uh, I'm sorry, starting in verse 1. 
Micah says, Hear now, O heads of Jacob, and you rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice, you who hate good and love evil, who strip the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from them, break their bones and chop them in pieces like meat for the pot and flesh for the cauldron? What better description of steal, kill, and destroy than right here in Micah chapter 3? Continue reading. Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not hear them. He will even hide his face from them at that time because they have been evil in their deeds. Micah continues, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who make my people stray, who chant peace while they chew with their teeth, but who prepare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Notice how Micah describes these false prophets. As long as they've got fried chicken and sweet tea, they'll preach peaceful, good things to you. But as soon as the buffet runs out and there's no more food, they preach wrath and destruction. You see how he's describing that. They preach peace to the one who feeds them, and the one who does not feed them, they preach wrath and destruction. This is the thief that Christ is talking about, false prophets who come. Now, Christ is contrasting these false prophets with himself. And notice, brothers and sisters, why it is that Christ is the only door of the sheep. Look at what he says at the end of verse 10. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Maybe we can describe it this way. The false prophets, the false preachers come to eat the flesh of God's people. Christ comes to give his flesh to God's people. False prophets want to eat and consume God's people. The Son of God comes so that God's people can eat and be fed on himself. That's why he's the only way to salvation. That's why he's the only door of the sheep. Now, we need to make a couple of applications for our day. First, doctrine is important. We're going to get further on into what the doctrine actually is in the next part of this passage. But understand, doctrine is the doorway into the church. If somebody does not have the right doctrine, they are not a part of the church. Turn to 2 John. 2 John, tiny little book. Very easy to flip right past it. 2 John... expresses the same idea in verse 9. He begins the letter and says, the elder to the elect lady and her children. John is probably talking about a church. He describes this church as an elect lady and her children are the members. Notice what he now says in verse 9. Uh, verse 7 is actually a good place to start. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we do not lose the things we worked for, that we may receive a full reward. Whoever transgresses, notice carefully, and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ, 
does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. Notice how doctrine serves a gateway function here. He who has the doctrine is in the fold. He who does not have the doctrine is outside of the fold. They don't have God. They don't have the Son. Now keep reading. Verse 10. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house. If someone comes to you and does not confess that Christ is the door, don't open your door to him. If someone comes to you and does not maintain the doctrine of Christ, you do not need to let him into your house. In fact, you need to flee from him. Do not receive him into your house, nor greet him, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. You know, there's a lot of reasons to be thankful for a man like John Piper. Uh, John Piper, in many ways was the introduction to a lot of people of of deeper theology, deeper Reformed theology. But there, it may have been John Piper, I can't remember who it was, but there there was a conference one time called the Elephant Room. And at this conference, many preachers were invited to talk about the gifts of the Spirit. One of the preachers who was invited on that stage is a man named T.D. Jakes. Now, T.D. Jakes is a known heretic. He is a, I believe, a oneness Pentecostal. He denies the Trinity, charismatic man, and he lives large. You you can tell that he is being fed fried chicken and sweet tea. He's living a very prosperous life. Well, while this man was on the stage, some other, it may have been John Piper, it may not have been. Don't quote me on that. I don't want to disparage John Piper. But there was another man on the stage with T.D. Jakes interviewing him and talking with him as if he were a brother in Christ as if he were one of the true shepherds, as if he maintained that Christ was the door. Well, John warns that you should not greet these type of teachers. You should not share a stage with these type of teachers, and you should not welcome them into your house. That's on a very broad level, but particularly for you. This is the way to judge what you read. This is the way to discern the preachers that you listen to. It's the way to judge me, but it's also the way to judge any other Christian teachers who might teach you. If the substance of their doctrine does not center on the person and work of Christ, if their doctrine does not lead you to the Lord Jesus and cause you to glory and see more of the Lord Jesus, it's either not worth your time or dangerous to your soul. You need to discern and have nothing to do with it. Now, there's a lot of doctrines swirling around in the world today. As John said, many deceivers have gone out into the world, and there are many antichrists. One of the primary doctrines today that is dangerous for you is the doctrine of critical theory. Now, this doctrine produces, uh, it, it comes to you in many different forms. It may come to you in the form of social justice. It may come to you in the form of uh, racial reconciliation. It may even come to you in the form of fighting abuse. All of these are forms of critical theory. And this kind of doctrine denies the gospel in one particular way. 
These doctrines deny the gospel because they deny the possibility of forgiveness. The whole thrust of these theories is that once your ancestors have committed sin, once you're labeled a part of the oppressor class, you are always an oppressor. You are always a slaveholder. You are always a uh, racist because your ancestors were racist. There's no forgiveness. There's no hope for you. The only solution is for you to die under a thousand uh, uh, acts of self-flagellation. These doctrines are out there, brothers and sisters, and they come to you in the garb of Christian teaching. The Southern Baptist Church is et up with this stuff. Uh, the, the PCA is rife with this kind of doctrine. The OPC is fighting it right now, but it is out there, and you need to be aware of it. Christ says, though, that I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Having looked at the doorway function of doctrine, we now look at the substance of the doctrine. You know, um, if you go to some of the old castles in Europe that, that were able to withstand the siege, and you know that the gates were able to hold, you might want to ask yourself, well, what did they make these gates out of? What was the substance that it was able to hold so long against an onslaught? Well, Christ now describes these things. He gives us the substance of the doctrine. First, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. The substance of the gospel is Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's it. That's why the gospel stands forever. It can never be overthrown and it can never be broken through by the gates of hell. Because of this one simple doctrine. I am the good shepherd and I laid it my life down. Uh, the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Turn back with me to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel 36 Uh, pardon me, 34. Ezekiel 34, he, the, the prophet has been saying that the false shepherds, the bad shepherds will be driven out and that God will one day raise up a true shepherd. You know, we read this passage in John sometimes and I think we, we're sentimental about it. We know that Christ is the good shepherd and that's true, he is the good shepherd, he's the loving shepherd. But when Christ says, I am the good shepherd, he's invoking more than romantic ideas of uh, pastoral paintings of a shepherd and sheep. He's invoking the prophecy of Ezekiel 34. Look with me. Just a couple of verses. We're going to bounce around a little bit. Ezekiel 34, verse 11. Uh, starting in verse 10. The Lord is rebuking the shepherds. It says, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds. I will require my flock at their hand. I will cause them to cease feeding the sheep, and the shepherds shall feed themselves no more. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. For I will deliver my flock from their mouths that they may no longer be food for them. Verse 11, for thus says the Lord God, indeed, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock on the day he's among his scattered sheep, 
So I will seek out my sheep and deliver them from all the places where they were scattered on a cloudy and dark day. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries. I will bring them to their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, in the valleys, and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them in good pasture, and their fold shall be on the high mountains of Israel. Notice all of the parallel language from John 10. I will seek for my sheep. I, the Lord God, will feed them in good pasture. I will deliver them after they have been scattered on a dark and cloudy day. Now skip down to verse 23. I will establish one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them. My servant David, he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them, I, the Lord, have spoken. Notice in Ezekiel 34 that he prophesies, the Lord God will be the shepherd of the sheep, and he will appoint David to be the shepherd of the sheep. How can this work? Is God the shepherd, or is David the shepherd? The way that this is reconciled is through the Incarnation. Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God and the Son of David, is the Good Shepherd. So in John chapter 10, when he says, I am the Good Shepherd, he's invoking all of these prophecies. He's telling the Jews, I'm the one to look for, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Christ then goes on and compares himself to the false shepherds. Verse 12, but a hireling who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I'm known of my own. The substance of the doctrine is Christ and Him crucified, but now in this section... Christ then explains why he lays his life down for the sheep and why the hireling does not lay his life down for the sheep. And it's simply this. The reason that the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep is because he loves the sheep. The reason Christ dies for the sheep is because he loves the sheep. He does this by way of contrast. Notice that he says the hireling flees Verse 13, because he does not care about the sheep. The hireling is there to draw a paycheck. The good shepherd is there for the sake of the sheep. And notice also the vivid description that Christ uses here. He says when the wolf is approaching, the hireling flees and leaves the sheep. Which implies that the good shepherd, when the wolf is approaching, puts himself in front of the wolf and between the sheep. Instead of allowing the wolf to devour the sheep, the good shepherd is devoured by the wolf on behalf of the sheep. Christ expresses this in verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and am known by my own. This word known in the scriptures often implies more than just intellectual knowledge. It implies a deep, intimate knowledge that comes from love. In Genesis chapter 3, it says that Adam knew his wife 
and she conceived and bore a son. The knowledge that Adam and Eve had was not an intellectual meeting of the minds. They knew each other as husband and wife. They loved each other. Christ uses the same kind of language here. I know my sheep. I love my sheep. I lay down my life for my sheep, and my sheep know me. My sheep love me in return. Peter uses this same kind of language in 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. He describes the true faith of those that are redeemed, the true faith of the elect. In other words, what John would describe as the sheep. 1 Peter 1, 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Notice how Peter describes those that are saved as those who believe in Christ and love Christ. Even as Christ says in John chapter 10, I love my sheep and my sheep love me in return. Returning to John chapter 10. The substance of the gospel is that Christ is the good shepherd. And he lays down his life for the sheep because he loves the sheep. Christ is described in other places as the friend of sinners. Christ is described as a merciful and faithful high priest. Christ, as the good shepherd, through his bloody cross, proves to mankind the love that God has for sinners. Now, you need to ask yourself a question How do you understand the gospel? How do you understand what it means to be a Christian? To be a Christian means to enter by the doorway of Christ. And the doorway of Christ is his death and resurrection. But even more than that, the death of Christ is the expression of God's love to sinners. Even as John says in chapter 3, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. Brothers and sisters, I want you to be reminded and encouraged. The center of your salvation is the love of God for sinners. That is why Christ died. That is why you have hope in Christ if you believe in Christ. The center of your salvation 
is not your obedience. The center of your salvation, the ground of your hope, is not how holy you can be or how holy you were. The ground of your hope is that the shepherd dies for the sheep. Now, in response, we love him in return. John will say in his first letter, we love because he first loved us. We rejoice in Christ because he first rejoiced over us. Brothers and sisters, let me put it this way. If you are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation, God loves you. God rejoices over you. God sings praises over you. And as Christ says in Psalm 22, part of the reward of His cross is that He comes in the midst of His brethren and sings glorious praises to His Father by His Spirit in the midst of the church. Brothers and sisters, never forget that Christ loves His sheep because He is the Good Shepherd. Well, Christ goes on and says, The hireling flees, but I lay my life down for the sheep because I love the sheep. He further uh, elaborates on this in verse 15. He says, As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay my life down for the sheep. Now, he's using the same language of know, and he adds another layer to the love of God. Notice what he says in verse 15. As the Father knows me, and we're understanding this as to love, it's a deep, intimate knowledge. As the Father loves me, even so I love the Father. Now notice at the end of verse 15, it's because of Christ's love for the Father that he lays down his life for the sheep. Now what does this tell you? This tells you that not only does the good shepherd love you, he died for you, but this also tells you that God the Father loves you because he sent his son to die for the sheep. Christ will say in another place, um, no one can snatch the sheep out of my hand. My father is greater than I, and no one can snatch the sheep out of his hand either. Brothers and sisters, you, you not only have one divine person that loves you, you have two divine persons in this passage that are saying, we love you through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father and God the Son love you. Christ goes on and he says, other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring and they will hear my voice and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Christ is speaking, I believe, here about the Gentiles. He's speaking about the elect of the Gentiles. The fold that he's dealing with is Israel, the Jews. Christ is telling the Jews, there's other sheep not of the nation of Israel. I need to gather them. They will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Paul gives us the realization of this promise. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And notice the connection that Paul draws here. 
between Gentiles, the blood of the cross, and the voice of Christ. Gentiles, blood of the cross, voice of Christ. Ephesians 2.11 Remember that you, who once were Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called circumcision, made in the flesh by hand, that at that time you were without Christ. You were outside the door. Being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Christ has loved you and brought you near by his blood, for he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of uh, separation having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man. There will be one flock, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross. Verse 17, And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. Notice how Paul is expressing the same doctrine. Gentiles, by the power of the blood, hearing the voice of the shepherd, are brought in to the sheepfold. Now, there's one very important application for all of us here tonight. The substance of the gospel is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who's crucified for sinners. The reason that God the Father and God the Son do this is because of their love for sinners. And the way in which you partake of the gospel blessedness is by hearing the voice of the Son, is by hearing the voice of the shepherd, is by hearing preaching. It is through the preaching of the gospel that the power of Christ is extended to you that the power of the blood is made manifest before your eyes. And in hearing the preaching of the gospel by the Spirit, you hear the voice of Christ. And in hearing the voice of Christ, you are brought into the sheepfold. How important is preaching? How important is the gospel ministry for your benefit, for your salvation? Christ said, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. And he tells you that the way this life comes to you is through the preaching of the gospel. Preaching is on hard times in our day. In many ways, in the church in America, preaching has been abused. There are many hirelings There are many thieves and robbers who have ascended the pulpits of Christ's church, and they occupy their office in order to live high on the hog, to fleece the flock, and to feed themselves. And I'm not talking about T.D. Jakes. I'm talking about men in the Reformed churches. Think about it. Well, I'll just tell you a personal anecdote. I won't share any names. But when I went to seminary, And in many of the seminaries across America, wasn't as bad at my seminary, but I've heard about this in other seminaries, you find these men come through. And they want to come through this seminary. They say that they want to be pastors of God's people. 
But as you get to know them, you can tell they want to write books. They want to get a PhD. They want to have their name in print. They want to ascend the conference speaking circuit. They're ambitious men, and they want to use the pulpit of Christ to enrich themselves. Or in other churches with perhaps less gifted men uh, than these academics, you find men occupying pulpits and they're publishing their own opinions. They're using the pulpit to preach their own doctrines. And so as I say, preaching has fallen on hard times. Many of us, I dare say, have been under ministries where the pulpit has been abused. You hear very little of Christ and you hear a lot of the preacher. It should be the other way. You should hear very little about the preacher and you should hear everything about Christ in the pulpit. What does this mean for us? You need to pray for preaching. You need to pray that God would raise up preachers. Christ told the disciples, the harvest is plentiful. Pray the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. Now the reason for this, again as I have said, as Christ teaches, as Paul teaches here, as he teaches in Romans chapter 10, men cannot believe in Christ if they don't hear about him. And if they don't hear Christ, uh, if they don't uh, hear Christ, they can't believe in him. And they can't hear Christ unless somebody preaches. And somebody can't preach unless they are sent. And so we need to pray that the Lord would raise up preachers because this is the means by which the gospel goes forth. This is how Christ gathers his sheep. Well, we've seen the doorway of doctrine and the, uh, uh, there's one more, uh, pardon me, uh, bit of substance in the doctrine. Verse 17 and 18, Christ then speaks about the Father's love for him. And it again comes down to Christ laying down his life for the sheep. Therefore, my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. The last bit of the substance of the gospel. Christ is the good shepherd. He lays down his life for the sheep. And he does this under his own authority. This means that Christ is God incarnate. This is one of the passages that proves Christ is God in the flesh. Notice how he describes himself. No one takes my life from me. This man is not subject to the power of death. The power of death is subject to him. He lays down his life under his own authority, and he has power to take it back again. Only God can do this. Only Jehovah has the power of life and death. Not only does this prove that Christ is God in the flesh, but I want to encourage your hearts about the love of Christ to you for whom he has died. When Christ was on the cross and he was at the moment of death, he gave up the ghost not because he was overpowered, not because he was overwhelmed, but because he had borne the wrath sufficiently to pay for your sins. And once he had come to the end of his sufferings, 
He volunteered his life. He laid it down of his own authority. He voluntarily died for you. He was not overpowered by the Father. He was not overpowered by the Romans. He died of his own authority. This is probably the primary expression of what we saw this morning in God's voluntary condescension. Everything that God has done for your salvation, He does according to His own good pleasure. Nothing motivates Him to do it except His own love for His people. And so Christ says, I lay down my life for myself. Well, we've seen the doorway of doctrine. We've seen the substance of doctrine. Now we come to the division of doctrine. Doors are meant to divide. They keep the inside in and the outside out. You know, we were enjoying some time on my porch the other day. It was a little hot. And uh, my son goes into the house, and then he, he opens the door and leaves it open. And my wife was like, what are you doing? He's like, well, I want this cold air to come outside. And we said, well, don't do that. We pay for that cold air. If you want the cold air, go back inside. Doors are meant to divide, and we see a division here that arises from the doctrine. Notice, there was a division among uh, uh, the Jews because of these sayings. Many of them said he has a demon and is mad. Why do you listen to him? This division probably arises as it arose at the end of chapter 9 from the pride of the Jews. The, the Jews were proud of their heritage and they were proud that they were born into the visible church. They were circumcised according to the law. They are the seed of Abraham as we learn in John chapter 8. And what Christ is telling them is that all of these outward privileges do not profit you at all unless you believe in Christ. Unless you enter in through Christ, all of these outward privileges are nothing. You are outside of the sheepfold. You are not one of Christ's if you don't enter through Christ. And so the pride of these Jews is saying, well, he must be insane. He has a demon. He's insane. Why do you listen to him? And so they reject what he's saying. But the other side, verse 21, these are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Notice that they're referencing the miracle of John chapter 9. And as they reference this miracle, the miracle serves the purpose of confirming the doctrine. This miracle comes up and they're reminded of this and they say, look, if this man had a demon and if he were insane, he could not open the eyes of the blind the way that this man did. Because he opened the eyes of the blind, his teaching must be true. This, this must be the truth. That's the only conclusion we can come to. And so the proud are kept out of the church of Christ and the humble are prepared to learn more. Verse 21 doesn't mean they've come to salvation. It simply means they're open to learning more. Can a demon-possessed man do this? Certainly not. He must be speaking the truth. And so they're ready to learn more about him at this point. Likewise, brothers and sisters, we need to be careful, especially of pride. Pride is the one sin that will keep you out of the church. Pride ultimately is the only sin. Because you can have a liar, and he may be caught in a lie, but if he's humble, he'll confess and repent of his lie. You can have a thief, and if he's caught and humble and repents, he can be forgiven of his thievery. 
But if you have a proud liar and a proud thief who will not repent and acknowledge the Lord Jesus Christ, he will ultimately be cast out because pride keeps him from believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I also need to be on guard against pride. Pride shows itself in many different forms. Primarily, it shows itself in resistance to the truth. Resistance to conviction. Notice what Christ did with these Jews. He said, you're part of the visible church. You have the outward privileges. But if you don't have me, you are nothing. And they're resistant to this truth. They're resistant to the conviction. And ultimately, they're kept out. Likewise in our lives, brothers and sisters, you may hear something in the pulpit. You may read something in the scriptures. You may have a conversation with a brother or sister who's speaking scripture to you. Be open to the conviction. Be open to the Lord showing you your sin because he shows you your sin so that you would see his salvation. Amen and amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus and his death on the cross. And we thank you for the gospel ministry by which you have saved us and brought us into the sheepfold. We pray, O Lord, that you would raise up ministers of the gospel to preach your word in season and out of season. We pray that you would bless our congregation to ever hear the voice of Christ praising your name. And we pray that you would cause us, as the sheep of Christ, to hear his voice, to love our shepherd, and to follow him into life eternal. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.